You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hello, everyone. Peter Maravellis here. I hope this finds you all safe and well. I'd like to welcome you to City Lights Live, the virtual reading series that continues in the footsteps of our in-store calendar during the time of the pandemic. We are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatusha Loni peoples from where we continue to celebrate the works of authors we know and love with readings, discussions, and forums moving into the fall season and beyond. One of the great pleasures of working at City Lights and programming the calendar is our focus on featuring works that we enjoy and that really excite us. When we first became aware of Amitabha Kumar's work, it generated exactly this kind of response one of enthusiasm and curiosity. It is therefore a great pleasure to be able to host him tonight for his excellent new book, I Time Outside This Time, published by our friends at Alfred Knopf. The layering of ideas in this book, crossing over into each other, the way that we become aware of how the meta narrative kind of permeates our lives and really making it a kind of a, a breathtaking meditation on this moment. I mean, we see the author kind of taking inventory of what truth could possibly be at a time when it's being rewritten kind of at a quantum level almost every waking millisecond. So we've gone beyond Orwell, beyond Huxley into kind of an oceanic hurricane of, of data that really threatens to engulf us just by its sheer volume. And so it's really a universe more in tune with Burroughs and McLuhan. I think the great value of a book like this is not only how it you know, interrogates life in our post-truth era, but in how it offers us a chance to imagine a time outside of this one, and also the possibility of reclaiming our collective humanity. And for this, Mr. Kumar has performed a very great service. So Amitabha Kumar is a writer and journalist. He was born in Ara, India, and grew up in the town of Panta. He is the author of the novel Immigrant Montana, as well as several other books of fiction and nonfiction. He lives in Poughkeepsie, New York, where he is professor of English at the Helen D. Lockwood Chair at Vassar College. Tonight, he is beaming to us from uh, actually a, um, a retreat, uh, which he might mention to us later. Uh, joining him is another writer City Lights has great admiration for and who we have been following since the beginning of their career. Alexander Heyman needs little introduction. He is the author of The Lazarus Project, which was a finalist for the 2008 National Book Award and the National Book Critics Circle Award, and three books of short fiction, The Question of Bruno, Nowhere Man, and Love and Obstacles. He's received numerous honors for his work, including a Guggenheim Fellowship, the Genius Grant from the MacArthur Foundation, and the Dos Passos Prize. He makes his home in Chicago. Before we begin, I'd like to inform you, no? no. Princeton, New Jersey. Princeton, New Jersey. Princeton, New Jersey. I stand corrected. So, uh, gentlemen, it is such a delight and a great honor to have you both with us here tonight. Amitabha Kumar, Alexander Heyman, welcome to City Lights Live. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I love City Lights. I wish I could be there um, in my body, maybe next year, who knows? And I'm very happy to be talking to Amitava, my friend and a writer I greatly admire. And regarding his new book, which I was privileged enough to have read before it was even published, and I could not wait to talk to him about it. Um, I thought, and I think Amitava agrees, that he should read a little first from the book, just to, so we could get a sense of the 
of the register and tone and the spirit of the book. Man, you, you know what? You, you, look, you look so much better in this image and you're so much better lit. I think if I was at home, it would have been different. You know, I've always believed you're not only a better writer, but much more handsome also. But that doesn't mean I have to read in a shitty light. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and I didn't mean city light, I meant shitty light. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Anyway, I'm here at, uh, I shouldn't complain. Those of you who have been, I think I saw a couple names who have been to Yado will recognize this. I'm sitting in their library. I sat at dinner to people. I just arrived today for 10 days. I said to them, you know, um, from 9 to 10, the library will be not available to anyone. So, listen, thank you everyone for being here. Thank you, Sasha. Um, I wanted to read to you, if, if anyone looks uh, at the bibliography, you'll see that the gentleman I'm in conversation with right now is thanked for a piece he wrote called Stop Making Sense or How to Write in the Age of Trump. I'll read to you a paragraph from that and I'll read to you a paragraph from my book. And this is not a competition, but I hope you see that there is some similarity. I was trying very hard. That's all I'm saying. Okay, here's the, the thing from Sasha's article in the Village Voice that came out just after Trump, two days after Trump uh, was inaugurated. I mean, I should say, I shouldn't say Trump because Sasha used words like Donald fucking Trump and psychopath in chief. So uh, I can see Sasha's wife there in the screen, but I hope the children are not there. Oh my God, I can see one, one of them is there. Sorry, sorry. All right. Uh, so Donald F. Trump, okay. Uh, the only unbearable consequence of the electoral outcome was that the reality, the world in which I had lived had become instantaneously unimaginable. It was clear to me, not only that nothing would be as it used to be, but also that nothing had ever been the way it used to be. I knew neither what had happened nor what would. Overnight, America, its past, present, and future had become unreal. So that's our friend, Sasha. And then I want to read to you a paragraph from my book, just to describe a similar change, which I think is happening in India. Why must one slow jam the news? because all that is new will become normal with astonishing speed. You will go to visit your father and discover that he has pledged himself to the service of the great leader. Or you will visit your friend's house and it will take a minute or more to realize that a meeting is underway and now everyone is looking at you with suspicion. You notice one fine day that all the signs on the road have changed. Your town has a new name. Dogs have grown fat on flesh torn from corpses lining the street where you grew up. The beautiful tree outside your window is dead, has been dead for some time, and has in fact just now burst into flames. So those are those two landscapes and those are comparable, I think, cultural landscapes. What do you think, Shasha? Well, I think what, one of the great things about your books is that it investigates the, uh, the construction of reality, right? Um, conceptually, but also the main character and narrator, who very much resembles you, is struggling how to talk about the reality in which she lives and operates. 
and reality, the reality is segmented in that, you know, there's the American reality, the Indian reality, and he's also in, in Bellagio, or similar, right, as retreat. It is, it is. Which, yeah. which, is, uh, which is, you know, uh, a, a zone unto itself, kind of suspended from the rest of the world. And so, um, what I like about the book is a sort of seemingly casual narration, conversational, uh, but also essayistic discourse in which things are addressed. And it, it, it seems as though the things are just arrived at spontaneously, but it is masterfully constructed precisely by organizing these spaces and making them reflect one another in different ways because they're not obviously connected. So what I would like to ask you is to what extent you constructed the book, structured the book, uh, before you started writing it, or did you have in mind the structure as you were writing it? At what point did you know this is what it's going to be, this is how it is going to be, this book? Yeah, I did not have this structure when I started writing the book. I had thought that I will have the narrator go back a little bit into his past, and then he, he will tell another story, and he will he will see that he has to revise the story that the state tells. I thought I would do that repeatedly. Cool. But then the pandemic arrived and I thought, whoa, whoa, whoa. I cannot because uh, the WHO declared that we were also faced with an infodemic and that was the fake news that we had to deal with. I had to decide, oh, uh, maybe I should very quickly have us dealing with what could be called um, fake news and so the real change that uh, the structure in, in terms of structure the change that uh, the novel underwent was that i had to um, think about the pandemic coming around chapter three or something of what maybe five six chapters so um, otherwise the idea that the state is a writer of bad fiction and that novelists must correct that all over and over that idea was there from the beginning and i kept going with that is that am i answering your question sasha i don't even know whether i am well we're having a conversation i mean it is, yeah the conversation is flowing to my mind uh, man i'm just i'm just thrilled that you're talking to me you know what i'm saying uh, i'm thrilled that i'm talking <laughs> to you too uh, and all these friends all right all right i know we should be drinking in, in yes. a, a Shit, library yes. Diado right now yeah. but, i don't know man there's nothing uh, here the i'm drinking changed. water from there but they, ha they have a very elegant uh, thermos now so that's good. Um, I, I want to ask you this. You said the idea that the, the state writes fiction and the writer has to oppose it. This yeah. is, I must say, uh, a very Eastern European idea. I mean, politically speaking, that at a time of communism and socialism, the state was in fact writing fiction and not just by creating a fictional uh, social hierarchy as just, a fictional, fictional just social hierarchy, but also they were controlling the production of literature and other arts precisely yeah. so as to produce a reality that justified the existence of the state itself, right? And um, I grew up in that. Yes. And so to me, it was instantly recognizable when, whenever I saw the American state doing this. However, <laughs> there's a, a common belief in this country that this is freedom and democracy, that we all have access to information freely and that we could all just freely assemble our picture of reality, which is objective and unbiased, right? And then uh, even Fox News claims, you know, to be telling the truth. That, that's been there long. I can't remember what the exact words are, but you know, they're telling the truth. So 
it seems to me in the past few years, certainly with Trump, but I think it started with Bush and the, the war in Iraq, the war on terror, right? This sort of fictionalization of American reality, right? Accelerated to the point that people um, have started recognizing, right? That we are yes. really living in a fantasy of America, right? It's kind of the matrix of America. And so at what point did you confront that fact? Was there a moment you thought, oh no, now I understand. We're always alert to that. There was this construction of America as a reality that is detached from the actual reality in which people live. Yeah, I, that started really for me after 9-11. Um, you know, I wrote a book called A Foreigner Carrying in the Crook of His Arm, A Tiny Bomb. I stole that title from a Jewish poet uh, whose book was called A Foreigner Carrying in the Crook of His Arm, A Tiny Book. And I thought after 9-11, the paradigm of the foreigner, the foreigner who had become an object of suspicion, one could now have a foreigner carrying in the crook of his arm a tiny bomb. And so those that, in that book, I was reporting on terrorism trials where, you know, small time crooks had been basically co-opted, had basically been entrapped into serving as collaborators informants bringing in bad information really because they were forced if they wanted not to be deported they were forced to spy in mosques to um, talk to people who actually lacked even average intelligence and convince them that they must participate in conspiracies so to have one the complexity and the truth of one's life reduced to something very very simple and flattened into a stereotype that became very clear to me then and the state as a you, you know you noted that uh, that i had said the state as a writer of fiction what i was actually saying was the state is a writer of bad fiction yes. in other words the flattening of character the reduction of plot to something very simple and very stupid was something that i became very conscious of at that time and so in one of the chapters here i have included as you will remember that a man approaches me well I shouldn't say me because it's the narrator. Uh, Khalid Farouk. <laughs> That's right? exactly yeah. Yeah. Khalid Farouk. Khalid can we, can you tell us a bit about him and the, what, in the book and where you uh, got that idea from? More yes, yes. I had gone to do a reading at Trinity College and I met a, someone in the audience, a young man, who told me a little bit of his story. And I have fashioned this fiction out of that. He was a young man who came a few days after 9-11. There was some irregularity in his visa. And these people just nabbed him and took him. The FBI took him to the Pashto-speaking region of Northwest Frontier Province in Pakistan. And they, had, they were interrogating Afghani people. And the man was very, very, you know, this young man was uh, very honest. I would ask him what how did he translate and he said well it was difficult to understand when people when the fbi were pulling the nails out of these people they were torturing you know uh, and it was his story and i re realized that there were small lies that he was telling me about his personal life and i tried to highlight that in order to say that you might be a liar you might be an adulterer does that make you a terrorist? 
and does it allow you to put you put someone in guantanamo for that and so this whole global war on terror how it was and you know it was a, uh, it was a terror industrial complex that allowed certain section of america to flourish by flattening by telling the stories of others that the others did not have any say in and that they, that reduced them to small ploys that was what was what uh, drew me to farooq and he was a good storyteller i have just of course taken it elsewhere what he said to me it's a it's a very fascinating story there's another story about um Vishal and Kundan, yeah. Avinash, who's yeah. a, a rebel. Yes. Vishal is a policeman who's who's the narrator's friend from high school. Yeah. Who uses a, a Kundan as an informer, an inside um, informer from the for the Avinash um, group, a troop. Yes. And so there's a clear parallel there. Could you, could yes. you then talk about it in relation to the Indian narrative? Yes, that's a great question. Well, you know. You know, Sasha, in the same way as you have friends now who are, I don't know, I know of one friend of yours who is a captain of industry in a way. Uh, and there are other people doing wonderfully or are on the top of their fields. My classmates now are senior bureaucrats in India, you know. So I did ask a man who was a police chief, if he would allow me to meet a man who was responsible for the killing of a guerrilla leader. And the fiction I have produced there is similar to what I did with Khalid Farooq. And I try to investigate, what is the story that the state tells about people who rebel against it? And how does it grant the person who is a dissenter in this form? Does it grant them individuality? Does it grant them any stories? Does it, and, 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 and can it disappear them from the general narrative which you and I or anyone else as a citizen occupies. Uh, and that is the horror that I felt in discovering that people could just be disappeared by the state. There would be, if you dissented in a certain way, you would not only be considered anti-national, you would actually be considered a terrorist and you would be disappeared. And that's what happened to people who were different, who were sold for a bounty, and sent to Guantanamo, where they rotted for eight years, 10 years, you know, without trial. Uh, in this case, the story I wrote about the police informant was that of disappearing someone. And the father, I met a father actually in Central Asia, in, in Central India, who said, what happened to my son? If they ate his flesh, give back at least the bones so that I can have a funeral, you know? So that's the reality of the state, you know, the state as a brutal, uh, agency. Another parallel is um, it, between India and the United States is um, it has some different forms, but it's a threat of Islamophobia and yes. anti-Muslim anti sentiment, which is which is exploited by the state. It was the basis of the, the so-called war on terror, right? The whole premise of Iraq invasion was just um, basic Islamophobia that all Muslims uh, are inherently suspicious and therefore yeah. invadable. Yeah. Uh, and of course, in India, we know that a Hindu nationalist um, occasionally commit massacres and pogroms of, of Muslims. And you exactly. that as a, exactly. as a story about a servant who, as part of the greater narrative uh, of a Hindu family who then gets involved in, into a pogrom. Can you t tell us a bit more about that? Yes, yes. Thanks. 
man that's a careful reading you remember it from that time you read my god you 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 are the only person who really deserved that macarthur genius there are some of them man oh, you know let's not go crazy here <laughs> okay listen listen uh one 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 hindu leader one hindutva leader you know this leader of the right wing hindu party said it is true it is true he said in parliament it is true all muslims are not terrorists but all terrorists are muslims okay and so my effort was to show to him i wanted to show well, i have done this you know also in another book but i wanted to show how is the majority community the hindus to which i belong actually the real fanatics and the real killers the story i was trying to tell which is the first story i thought i should present from a child's viewpoint partly because i when i was very little uh, a little younger than esther in case she is there in the audience uh, a little younger than esther i experienced a riot in my town my father was a bureaucrat hindu muslim riot you know and so i wanted to think about what happens in society from the viewpoint of this what i was calling i was saying to a friend the other night is a bruised innocence you know a child who does not understand exactly what is happening but is picking up the evidence the signs of how his community is really the killer and what is happening to the more vulnerable people who are just trying to keep their humanity intact and i was hoping that one of the things stories must do if the state is erasing the humanity of its citizens how must we as writers find more inventive ways of of reviving or 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 saving that humanity you know some shreds of the humanity you know what i'm saying i do um I want you to talk about, I know that the narrator in the book is not you, but I also know that the narrator in the book is engaging in ideas that are recognizably yours, not only because we talked about it, but it is as you're talking about it now. And so, um, what is his dilemma? What is he struggling with specifically? That is, what is his quest in the book? You know, and very early- To what extent is that different from your quest, as it were? not very different not very different friend but there are a few a couple of small differences that i want to highlight first of all somewhere early in the book he says i'd like to be able to tell my you know he's at a residency just as i am <laughs> and except that one was a little bit uh, chic more chic uh, he says who among your neighbors will look the other way when a figure of authority comes to your door and puts a boot in your face so uh, i identify with that quest i want to understand that what makes some people stand up why do they do that etc how is it different is he's married to a woman who's a behavioral psychologist who explains things like i don't know why the tablecloth in domino's pizza or pizza hut is red and white is because those are the colors that psychological experiments have shown makes you hungry good for people who do that kind of experiments i you know my wife doesn't do anything like that uh, she's an economist so 
in the case of my narrator, something that he's interested in doing is that against the experiment, even the neat stories that science tells, he's interested in telling stories that are more complicated and where the solutions do not lie in the neat symmetries that psychology experiments sometimes show. You know, I kind of like and I'm intrigued by the fact that, you know, some psychologists found out that the reason why Celine Dion plays on a loop in Walmart is that if you hear a sad song, you want to cure your sadness by buying something. <laughs> you know, that's good, that's good. But, but it's a bit too neat, man. You know, how to find the stories that really do something about our suffering and where Celine Dion isn't the cure and neither is spending more money. That sort of quest is, I think, more interesting to my narrator. Does that make sense, boss? Yeah. Um, so that leads to the question is, um, and the question that the narrator deals with is, so what is it that, what is the task of literature in a, in a, in a society that is, well, becoming rapidly unstable, shall we say, and which kind of changes the ethics of everyday life, including for writers. Um, so what is the writer can do and what is the writer has to do? And what is the, the place of literature? Because it's very easy to construct an argument that it really doesn't make much difference. It's sort of, it's an elite, yeah. it's an elite activity, you know, suiting to people who are already engaged in the activity, that it, it, is, a, it is a bubble unto itself. Um, yeah. One of the things that, uh, when we started this conversation this evening, I read out what you had written about Trump, because I wanted to say that one of the things I would like us to do is have that sort of a freedom and that sort of force that you were showing in that article. To speak with a liberated tongue, to at least say no and to say so vehemently, vociferously, and in more inventive ways is, I think, a good start. And since I'm talking about your work, well, when they gave the Nobel Prize to Peter Handke, you were very outspoken. And because I am a consummate uh, thief, I quickly put that in my novel. I, you know, I, I, I thought, all right, all right, how does this, so my narrator asked the question, should one come to fiction to escape from the lies? No, literature too is seeded with lies. I'm totally channeling you, you know what I'm saying? How could it be otherwise? I came across an article by Peter Mass with the following headline. Peter Handke won the Nobel Prize after two jurors fell for a conspiracy theory about the Bosnia war. Okay. And I talk about that conspiracy theory because this guy, my narrator has been talking about conspiracy theories and what is the difference between the fiction that we do and the fiction that is fake news. So that section ends by saying that, you know, what is that concrete encounter that Peter Maas had in a concentration camp in Bosnia, you know, and just bearing testimony, the evidence that he brought back because someone slipped him a piece of paper. I thought that is the task, man, you know, just to present it. I loved the fact, I loved the fact, I mentioned Claudia Rankin in one of my interviews today where I had a shout out for you too. And I loved the fact that when my, when my, I bought the book, Citizen, then on a page, it had the names of those who had been recently killed. But when I bought a copy for my daughter, the names had unfortunately grown 
But I loved the fact that the book had recorded the new deaths. In other words, the book was not a dead object. It was a record that was alive to the history happening around it. And I thought that by writing about how what Peter Maas had uncovered, he says, I, uh, my narrator says, this is terrible and moving. But what Maas's article also shows us is how difficult it is to erase from the public sphere from the bowels of the internet, a discredited, dishonest story. Truth might appear pure and incontestable, but lies live forever. So not only might literature be an elitist act, it might actually be a fucking futile act, right? But that's what one has to do to record in one's book and offer testimony uh, in order to save. So that's why, you know, my book started with around the time Trump was elected, just before that, my book started with a little obituary I wrote on the first death anniversary of a Muslim man who was lynched in India. A lot of life is left in a man being killed. I wanted to save a little bit of that life in the man being killed so that I would make him live forever, at least on the page. You know what I'm saying? It, it, it doesn't save his family, it doesn't do much for him, but it keeps him alive in a way that I think is important too. Well, it also counters the production of reality done by the state, which not only yes. erased his body, but would strive to erase the memory of him, or the, uh, let alone the act of killing him. Um, whether by justifying the killing or just claiming that it hasn't happened, as genocide deniers do, right? That's and right. Aided by people like Peter Handke. Yes. Who, um, the way that that genocide denial and um, as a means of denying reality operates is not that to uh, establish in um, contestable evidence that it didn't happen, but to insert plenty of doubt and claim that fakeness is widespread and equally distributed on all sides so that nothing could be trusted. And so that, in other words, it, 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 such an approach reaches a point where genocide simply cannot be proven and therefore it hasn't happened. Yes. And this yes. is a Handke operation. He never said it didn't happen, but he repeatedly generated false doubt about it all, claiming that it was on all sides and effectively denied genocide. The trouble with truth is that it has to be firmly established. Lies do not have to be firmly established. That's they right. sort of lose, they lose doubt, they, the pointless doubt, doubt that only works to destructive ends. And I, what, what I want to ask you about your book in, in, in the light of all this is that there's a, a fundamentally polyphonic op operation structure of your book, right? The narrator yes. has conversation with people and people tell him different versions of the same set of events. And he asks people who offer opinions different from his, and then he not quite doubts his opinions, but he develops them with the new input and so on. And so this is an ongoing polyphonic debate in the consciousness of the book, which is very much unlike the, the uh, um, single voice production of state fiction, right? Where doubt is precisely what needs to be eliminated from the top, or at least um, eliminate the doubt on, of other people, of subjects or citizens that could damage the state. And so yes. one would could claim that the way to counter the, the, the monovocal propaganda of the state is to create a united front and create an alternative and, and unified truth that would bring down the state. Uh. That is, that, 
that in some ways, and this is my experience in, in my previous country falling apart, is that diversity is harder to unite than the fanaticism, right? That's right. Fanatics That's right. tactical advantage because they quickly organize because they believe the same thing and they don't sit around and doubt things. Yes. Right? So Hindu nationalists, they do not doubt no. the propaganda that Muslims need to be exterminated. Trumpists do not doubt. Whereas we just spend our days doubting, right? That's yes, a tactical yes. disadvantage in the political arena. Yes. Um, say, can you say something about that? Yes. What are your yes, yes. Yes. I, you know, there is in the audience. I see there is someone who has a dog named Berger, and I have to say to you that Berger's, the other Berger's, uh, great line was how ambiguity is the site or, or he said something is a site of authenticity okay in other words i believe that it is precisely where you remove yourself from the certitudes of the authoritarians and have doubt or introduce ambiguity that you find a true authenticity so that is where i'm coming from but i must say and i totally agree with how you presented this idea of the fanatics not having any doubt but it is instead people like us who introduce doubt and the Hindu nationalist, for example, has no doubt that the Muslims, for example, are inferior human beings in the same way as a white race supremacist here has no doubt that black people are inferior, et cetera, et cetera. The only doubt now, however, that still exists in my mind is that one of the things I like about you, for example, Sasha, is that you I don't think there's too much <laughs> doubt when you are opposed to Trump, right? And I like the fact that there is that 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 that, that doubt exists in tension or uh, in tension with a very clear sightedness and a voice that is eloquent and strong. So I'm trying to introduce further doubt in our own conversation by saying I do cling to doubt. I have. I have hesitations and I try to introduce that in my story. I introduce it through the structure of revision where every story has to be revised because it is being presented by the state and it has to be questioned and altered. And at the same time, I think, wow, isn't it great when some people like you actually at some points turn around and say, stop it, stop it, stop it. You know what I'm saying? I like that too. So there is doubt. I'm drawn to it. And I understand, as Berger says, that you know, ambiguity is the site where authenticity flourishes. Um, but I also want, I also think sometimes how much I admire clarity and a certain kind of political certainty sometimes. Does that make sense to you? It does make sense. I mean, when we talk about doubt, it's sort of a, it's a conceptual category, right? I don't doubt that there's gravity operating on Earth and in, in universe, right? I don't doubt that vac vaccines are effective. So it's, yes, yes. It, it, doubt has, has has limits, but not but limits are determined by ethical or moral or you know scientific principles, which are accepted and I uh, by a, a majority. Well, I don't know majority of the United States, but uh, enough people in the world for me to think that well i'm not crazy i'm not the smartest one around here yeah. and so i believe scientists when they say there's gravity i don't have to test it myself right this is how education operates 
So there's a there's a and Hanke, of course, inserted doubt in the whole of you know genocide. Yes. Right. And so the question is at which point doubt becomes destructive, right? With doubt as a productive situation, as a means of investigation, as a, as a, the engine of investigation, as, as in search for knowledge that would then could be could be shared experientially with others, not as an absolute and definite yes. thing, but as a shared experience of acquiring knowledge. Yes. That is one thing. The other thing is that, you know, well, I don't trust anyone, including people who want to give me a vaccine or people who claim that the earth is round, right? Yes. That is just outright crazy. And so I don't, I don't know where the border is. Okay, okay. In the sense that I, I can imagine going crazy at some point and started believing nonsense. And so it requires yes. a constant self-doubting too. Yes, yes. And that is not productive politically, right? That's not what politicians do. They don't say, well, last week I said this, maybe I was wrong about it, right? I do it every day. Yeah. I, 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 can we introduce, I, I know that we should enter a question answer session soon, but can I introduce another term there? The difference between what Peter Hanke was doing by introducing doubt and what I'm doing by introducing doubt is that he is practicing bad faith. When I introduce doubt, I am really uncertain. I want like uncertainty to be a productive and generative category of action. When he says, oh, it is doubtful what happened or something, he's acting in bad faith. He knows what happened, I believe. And all his biases lead him to assert that things are in doubt. I, I wanted, I wanted at some point I have used the word bad phrase, bad faith, but I just want it to be in greater parlance in our culture to, uh, to guide us and to make us stronger in our opposition to those who act in bad faith. Can you say something about that? I, I, I want to receive some wisdom on that count. I don't know if I can provide wisdom, but faith is a slippery thing because it's doubt to that could lead to exactness. That is, scientists had doubts about the you know the um, reigning laws of physics because there were things couldn't, that could not fit into those laws of physics. So then they had doubt, but let that led to a. a a new level, a new approach to research and understanding how it works, right? Yes, so yes, gravity yes. works on Earth, but it doesn't work in the universe. But it took a while to figure that out by several generations of, of you know, astronomists and uh, astrophysicists. And they all had some kind of doubt that they, they didn't think, oh, it's exactly how it is. I'm just going to show up at work every day and, and confirm the thing that we already know. Yeah. So, whereas there's it's a different form of doubt from thinking, well, nothing is real, right? Yeah. Nothing is real at all, and whatever we say has no value because it, ha it is not anchored in any kind of shared reality or experience. And therefore, no shared social project can be established other than destruction of someone else who, yes. has, who, um, who, who is uh, the source of, um, of anxiety in those who are doubting everything. Yeah. I want to remind you that you promised you would ask Rabia's question. Oh, damn! Is he here? I don't know. Yes, yes. You are so good. Oh, my God. Terry. Yeah, he's not in the room just yet. But, you know, um, I'm actually getting requests for you to read excerpts from the book. Okay. Um, okay. Okay. But we have to... Uh, uh, no, Sasha, because this is... Uh, we, we, have to, we have to do this because I had promised him. 
our friend Rabbi Al-Madin has, has to make a public speech somewhere on these questions. And I said, yes, as we'll ask Sasha, we'll do a round, a rapid round fire. All right. It's like a yes and no almost. You have to give one line. Do you think political novels in general are bad? And if so, why? <laughs> well, I don't know how you define a political novel. All novels are political in some way, including by, you know, providing sheer entertainment um, instead of confronting the reality that we share. Very good. So, but there are novels that are certain about their political position and then they turn into propaganda, right? So part of the operation of um, the production of state fiction, it in, involves novels, it has involved historically novels that, and they, those novels will be political, that yes. propagated the political vision of the state. So I, I cannot commit to that, but I think you should read. Okay, okay, I will. All right. What can I read? I'll, let me read a passage from the beginning of the book, which again, I was trying to, in some ways, describe a situation. Um, in case, I'm trying, you know, Terry is here, and maybe even Mark was here the other day, so I'm like, maybe I should read a new passage? I don't know. Terry, just try to, I don't know. All right. When I was a boy in my hometown, uh, uh, Sasha, this is on page 19. When I was a boy in my hometown and it had been raining for three days, it became so that it was no longer possible to have any consciousness of a time when it wasn't raining. Rain soaked through the walls and slime grew on the inside, in the corners, and even on the ceiling. Phones stopped working. No newspapers came. Birds disappeared from the wet branches of trees. No question of going to school. There was no language outside of, it is raining outside. Water stood in the distant fields. It rushed down pipes and roared in the gutters. The roads became rivers in which people waded or swam. Bridge Bihari brought his cows onto the veranda at the back of our house. Mother would switch on the fans in one room to try to dry the wet clothes. It was all in vain. The snake found in the toilet was proof that the world outside had changed and the natural order had been turned upside down. Only rain was permanent. You could do nothing but wait. I'm saying all this because that is exactly what has happened to us politically. We cannot imagine, I cannot imagine sometime, a time outside this time. The people who are in power must also be deluded enough to believe this. They must think that their power is eternal, that they will sit on the throne forever. And it is this thought that is their failing because it condemns them to missteps and terror. Stay alert. You will hear the rain stop and the wind shift. The powerful will not be waiting for it, but that moment will come. It will mark the beginning of their doom, their end. That's great. Thank you. That's, that's a good note to introduce questions in it. Thank the you. questions Thank you, section, the Q&A part of the evening. There was a question very early, which I just want to very quickly address. They were saying, the person said that they could not find the article by Heman that I was looking for. But you were typing Sasha Heman, you said, and you should type Alexander Heman, and the piece will appear. Village Voice, January 17, 2017 and uh, you'll have it yeah it's there 
Okay, cool. Found it. Thanks. People are so quick. Oh my God. <laughs> um, if there are no questions from the audience, I can ask questions. Yes, no questions from do. the audience? Please do. Yeah, we're still waiting. It takes them a moment to. Yeah. yeah. I see all these people. So, yeah, please. One of the references in the book, your book, is 1984, the George Orwell novel. And uh, it is a pertinent reference in many ways, for obvious reasons, but also the totalitarian regime in 1984 is not unlike, it is not like what we're experiencing here or anywhere else in the world, right? There, maybe in Belarus, it is close to that, right? But there is a particularly bent mode of authoritarian regimes, which is, which, which is seemingly democratic, right? Including in this country, right? With throughout the war on terror, right? We voted freely and were most of the people were not concerned that they would be taken away at night, unless, of course, they were Muslims. And similarly, you know, India is seen as the largest democracy in the world. So it's a different kind of um, state in 1984. But that aside, I, I want to ask you about and, and <laughs> what, why 1984? Is that, a, is that a beginning of your thinking about state fiction? No, no. But it is true. <laughs> It is true that I, in the middle of the writing my book, I was reading the damn thing and I thought it appealed to me for two reasons. One, because the guy is also in love with someone. And I thought, damn, that gives me a way to also talk about love. You know, it's also, so I thought when this narrator talks about that, he gets, he keeps talking in 1984, Winston Smith keeps talking about this woman with the dark hair and he doesn't yet know her name. And then one day she drops a note and I, and I thought, you know what, if my narrator will is reading 1984 and he comes across this line that will make him also disclose his own desires and talk about his own love. And it will also allow me to just keep talking also about the totalitarian state or whatever. And the other reason it appealed to me, 1984, and that's why I inserted it as a structural device. I thought he could be reading what had happened. I remember saying this to you in the summer. Uh, what had happened was that Yu Yun Lee was asking people to read War and Peace. And every day we were reading 10 to 12, 15 pages. And I thought I'll do the same, not only with War and Peace, but I'll have the narrator read 10 to 12 pages. Because you know I, I'm not a very imaginative guy. I thought, let me just steal that idea and let this guy read 10 to 12 pages of War and Peace for every chapter. You know what I'm saying? And I thought I would have a little bit of totalitarianism. I'd have a little bit on love. And that's how I would proceed. And then my discovery, my surprise, even though I had read 1984 before and I had totally forgotten it, was that right in the middle of the chapter, right smack in the middle of the book, was this long motherfucking dull essay. And I thought, oh, I can also put an essay in my own book and I'll use this as an excuse to say to the editor who will say, who do, who do you think you are? Do you think you can just plop in an essay in the middle of a book? I'll say, you know what? George Orwell did it. And <laughs> my narrator is saying this. Uh, so I thought I, was, I was, I thought I was being clever and producing a little case for me to be forgiven by my editor. So that's why it appealed to me. I'm not saying that that was the best. What would you say um, would be a good way to think about 
political fiction. Which other books would you recommend? Well, I mean, there's so much. I will tell you this. Yes. When Handke won the Nobel Prize, right, and the Nobel Committee dismissed all these complaints that people like me made because they, had, they did not care about the politics. It was only literature, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and when, the, um, I forgot his name, the Tanzanian writer who just won, right? Yeah, uh, Abdul Razak Gurna. That's right. And, and they praised his fiction and in his um, addressing the issues, colonialism and racism and so on, all political issues, right? And which, and this is no news to anyone, right? White Western writers, they can write pure art. They don't have to write political fiction. They just wake up in the morning and they're free and they just think about eternal questions. Whereas the rest of us, yes. we get up in the morning and think, fuck, what am I going to do now yeah, in this yeah. world, right? Because things are falling apart. I have an ethical duty as a person, as a, as a husband, as a father, as a writer to do something about it because they are going to kill people I like if this yes. goes wrong, right? Absolutely. And so the very act of writing, the very choice to write after you wake up that way is a political act. Yes. Right? After, yes. With that knowledge, with that consciousness, whether it's right or wrong, it's beside the point. So Hanke can have his hobbies denying genocide, but when he writes fiction, it's just fiction. Yeah. The rest of us, we have, we have to write political fiction because there's no fucking choice. Yeah. And so that's what I think about it. 1984, had a specific target, right? This was written in 1948 and it was addressing Stalinist purges, right? And yeah. they were horrible. And, and, you know, the world in which Winston Smith lives was not entirely unlike Stalinist Soviet Union, right? Yeah. Whereas, so he could reimagine the already existing structures, not in the UK. He was, he was a committed socialist, obviously. And so he was disappointed in, in the betrayal of the project of socialism, the part of, of Stalinism. But yeah. we don't. We, the, here's the question that troubles me as a writer, right? I cannot sign onto any social utopian project that is as defined as communism and socialism, let alone capitalism, right? Whereas someone like Orwell could, never mind the Stalinist writers who, you know, had no other yeah. choice. Yeah. So we are kind of left alone with wallowing in doubts, right? And it's yeah. a position in itself, but I, I, it's not exactly, you know, looking good. Yeah, he, he other than your book, your book. Oh, all right, all right, all right. That's what I was hoping for. Okay, listen, there are a couple of questions that I want to quickly address. Um, uh, my man Mark asks, have you been following the current Facebook congressional testimony? Thoughts on the responsibilities of social media companies? I really wanted that, um, I, I, you know, I shouldn't be a policymaker, but I wanted to point out through my book that the largest number of rumors being spread in India leading to lynchings, murders, riots, deaths, is through WhatsApp, which is a Facebook-owned company. And I did not think, why? Why is it that people in the third world who rely on this service cannot also have a say in how it functions? That there should be policy changes. There should be reviews. People who use it the most should also have the greatest say in it. It shouldn't be only people sitting in the Congress and certainly not just only the corporates who, can, who own this thing, but actually people should have a say in determining the policy. So that's my answer to that quickly. Now from Jennifer, I like your use of the term bad faith. It occurs to me that the difference between the two types of fictions is that the fake news source aims to obfuscate, yes, and the good novelist aims to elucidate truths. Do you agree? By the way, I love that your narrator's name is Satya. Yeah, all right. 
Do I agree? Yes, I agree. Um, but you know, I should be more eloquent. Um, I know that Jennifer has been to India, so she knows the Satya part. Oh, and she's a practicing Buddhist. Man, all these woke people, they really test you. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> all right. Um, I really wanted to um, elucidate difficult truths. And in particular, because the narrator's wife is a scientist, I actually wanted to say that we should be skeptical of all kind of neat, plain stories that are told either by the state or even by science, um, that we have to be alive to all kinds of possibilities and doubt. Um, yeah, all right. Do you want to choose a question? Sasha, or maybe Peter can do the job. No, you, you go, you're doing good No, job. boss, then you have to answer someone who asks you, how do Messrs. Hemen and Kumar see the USA in relation to Yugoslavia? I think, I think that falls squarely in your court, friend. <laughs> well, I, I happen to be an expert. <laughs> well, I can tell you this, that um, the dissolution of Yugoslavia was surprising to most of the people those who did not organize the solution and worked actively to dissolve Yugoslavia were surprised. And not only because it was, there was a conspiracy, there was a certain amount of conspiratorial activity and all that, but it was, and this pertains to your book greatly and what we we're talking about, it was because people could not imagine that it could happen and they were so committed to their own delusion because the possibility of dissolution and what, would, what it would lead to, that is war, was so frightening that there was a, a kind of imaginative inertia. People simply would not want to imagine, and this included me absolutely because it was too frightening, they did not want to imagine what would happen. Even more uh, um, dramatically, I, I believe that for something to be real, it has to be imagined as real. And ah, that includes the, it includes the present reality. So it is perfectly possible to live in a place in the time that you cannot imagine. Um, so that, you know, at, at certain times in history, I don't, at the times of the rise of Nazis, and there were people who simply could not imagine the reality in which they were already living. And I find, I experienced that in Yugoslavia, it was a hard way to learn that, because I could not accept mentally the way it's very hard for us to think about our own death, because it's too fucking frightening. Um, that I, I knew everything, I was a journalist, I had plenty of information, I simply could not make the mental imaginative leap into, until it was relatively late, into imagining that it'll come to war and, and um, you know, genocide. And one of the things that is, to my mind, most dangerous in the United States is this commitment to the delusion, the fantasy of America that is inherently and eternally accepted from history and therefore will last forever because it simply is not subject to the logic of history as seen elsewhere because the constitution is so fucking great and we are special people and Obama was president and none, none of this could happen. So at this time, after Trump, after January 6th, there are still people think and some of them are running the goddamn country saying, We'll be okay. We are Americans, and that That's to right. me is where I want to fall on my knees and weep. Yes, I'm, I'm yes. less scared of Trumpists and and racists than of people who think we're Americans. We'll be okay. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's wonderful. Uh, listen, um, we are coming close to the end of time. Thank you. We should, uh, you know, 
I see several, some students, some Desi writers, uh, writer friends. All friends. Thank you. So I'm writing a little note. Peter, do you want to activate anybody? Uh, I, I should. I should. Everyone should be activated. Salma Sharif, read a poem for us. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, you want to say something? What about Sanjana? Salma, what are you doing? Girl, are you there? <laughs> oh I'm here. Hi. <laughs> yeah, and, your, and your book is coming out soon. Come on, read a poem for us and then we'll call it a night. <laughs> it's great to see you, Amitabha. Are you going to read a poem or not? Mm. Everyone is No, waiting. are you serious? Yes. No, please. <laughs> it's his show. I, uh, I have doubts about some things, but I don't introduce doubt in these invitations. Read a poem, make us all happy. Or at least have your publicist call me. We'd love to feature <laughs> you, for Christ's sake. Oh, my God. Do, why do you have to introduce your capitalist instincts here? No, man, let's enjoy some poetry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm teasing you. City Lights is legendary. Solmas, right. we are waiting. Oh, my God. Don't, don't put undue pressure. Let's. No, 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 man. I'm not allowed to unmute. Oh, she's saying I'm not allowed to unmute. Peter, can you unmute her? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, I can. Hold on. She's a millennial. She has to end everything with LOL. <laughs> oh, my God. A geriatric millennial, yeah. All right. Come on, read us a poem, please. Thank you. Uh, okay. Let me, let, me, let me find something. Only for you. Thank you. Um, America. I had to, I learned it, it was if, if was nice. I said, sure, one more thing, one more thing, eat, it said, it felt good, I was dead. I learned it, I had to. Wow, wow. wow. excellent. On that, yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you so very, very much. This has been such a delight to have you both here. And uh, thank you, Amitabha Kumar, Alexander Heyman. A big shout out to Rose over at Random House for all our efforts in making tonight happen. And of course, to all of you in the audience who help complete the circle. Also want to remind you, City Lights is now open for business. We're open seven days a week from 12 noon until 8 p.m. Come on down, browse our stacks. Also, we continue to publish books in the grand tradition of Lawrence Ferlinghetti's Pocket Poet series. Just published a book for Tongo Eisen Martin, the current poet laureate of San Francisco. Also reprinting uh, Diane DePrima's Revolutionary Letters in a 50th anniversary edition. So much, much more. Uh, check us out at citylights.com. Gentlemen, everyone, um, please be well, be safe. And uh, till the next time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.